Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for the uh, privilege of being among uh, the people of Christ every Lord's Day, um, knowing that the promises and blessings of the new covenant are ours in Him as a gift of grace. We thank that you have taken all of our sins and laid them on your Son, and He's paid the debt in full, and you've clothed us in His perfect righteousness and adopted us and sealed us with the Holy Spirit as your own possession. So we come today secure in Christ, privileged in Him, beloved, and knowing that nothing will ever separate us from your love. And we thank you for that. We know that this is a cause for us to worship you, to give you our souls today in sincere uh, worship. And we pray that you would enable us to do that by the power of the Spirit. Fill us with the Spirit this morning that we might that the word might dwell richly within us. And we pray even for our class in Leviticus this morning, that it would be a blessing to our souls, that we would learn much, and that we would be edified by your word, and in the big picture of things, equipped to understand the Bible better, um, so that we can grow in our knowledge of the truth, and of Jesus Christ, who is revealed therein. And so we pray it in his name, Amen. Amen. Okay. Continuing our study, Old Testament, just a little bit of a reminder of where we're headed and where we're at here. Um, as you see, we're going to spend one week on most books in the Old Testament, um, with the exception of a few. And remember that this is just part one. We will cover the prophets in a separate class. Um, just a few introductory items about the book of Leviticus. It would probably be good for you to just turn to Leviticus 1 and be ready for a flyover um, view of the book. It will, it will be even helpful for you just to follow along at certain points, and I'll, I'll let you know when. Just looking at the headings of the book and getting an, over, an overview, lay of the land type of understanding of it. So first of all, Leviticus is really part three of one book. So... You, you know, you're reading in the Narnia series, and you you get to you know the third book in the series. You're not you, you recognize that you're reading part three of one story, and that's how you should view Leviticus. It's um, Exodus ended with the Lord inhabiting the newly constructed tabernacle. In fact, if you look at the last chapter of Exodus, if you just flip your page back, if you have a study Bible, it's a few pages. You'll see the very last event in Exodus is that the glory cloud of the Lord comes down and fills the newly constructed uh, tabernacle. Well, now Leviticus picks up with the Lord calling to Moses and speaking to him from the tent of meeting, from the tabernacle. So this is picking up where Exodus left off. And obviously, we've established this before. Like the rest of the Pentateuch, it's written by Moses. Uh, you can see that from the very beginning, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, so what we have here is revelation from Yahweh, from the Lord, uh, to Israel through his prophet Moses. Okay, so that's, that's uh, some introductory items. When we look at uh, what kind of literature is in Leviticus, this is a little bit of an overview. So you have seven chapters of just straight laws. Then you have a few stories in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And then you have 13 more chapters of laws, 11 through 24, 9. You have a tiny story there in verses 10 through 16 in chapter 24. 
and then more laws. So as you can see, mostly Leviticus contains laws, um, and then that the, that the Lord delivered to Israel, but through Moses, with a few bits of stories mixed in. So this is one of the reasons why you don't enjoy reading Leviticus as much, because those stories are few and far between, and mostly it's legal code, essentially, uh, laws. So, you know, Ben, where's Ben? You enjoy reading Leviticus, but <laughs> I don't. If you enjoy reading laws, that's then you'll enjoy Leviticus. But hopefully, as we go through it, you'll, you'll actually be have your interest quick to go back and read it afresh with new eyes as a, as a result of this class today. So what is the purpose of Leviticus in the Pentateuch? And here's where I want to remind you that the Pentateuch as a whole consists of covenant documents because all the material in the Pentateuch is delivered to Israel through Moses surrounding this event of God entering into a covenant with Israel. And in fact, as I've mentioned many times before now, it follows a common covenantal structure from that day called, we now call it a suzerain vassal structure, where it's a treaty or an agreement or a covenant entered into by uh, a, a great king with one of his vassal nations. And that's the structure that is picked up and borrowed to form the sort of skeletal structure of the Pentateuch. And so what you see, first of all, is you have a historical prologue in in Genesis 15 all the way through Exodus 18, which tells the story of the history of the relationship between the two parties in the covenant. You know, how is it that we got to this point to enter into a covenant together? And that's what Genesis 1 through Exodus 18. Uh, telling all that God has done for them. And then you have the stipulations of the covenant. You have a description of the Lord entering into the covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. And then you have the terms of the covenant laid out in, in Exodus 19 all the way through the end of Leviticus. These are all the laws laying out, the stipulating the, the nature of and the terms of God's relationship with his old covenant people. And so you can see that Leviticus fits into... Well, we'll talk about the last chapter of Leviticus, but Leviticus, for the most part, fits into this part of the covenant documents, the terms of the covenant, the stipulations of the covenant between God and Israel. We should mention that there are covenant documents made, right, which would also be uh, common to these suzerain vassal treaties. There's the two tablets containing the Ten Words of the Ten Commandments that were actually written by Yahweh on Mount Sinai and given to, given to Moses. But you also have mention of this Book of the Lord, book, or Book of Moses, or Book of the Law that Moses wrote, where he wrote down all the stuff that we have in the Pentateuch. So you have covenant documents that, that lay out and preserve the stipulations of the covenant for generations to come in Israel. And then, finally, you have the blessings and the curses at the end of Leviticus 26. So you have an explanation of uh, the blessings that the vassal Israel will receive from Yahweh for keeping the terms of the covenant and the punishments that they will receive. Now, some of you might be wondering, where does Deuteronomy fit in here? That's the last book in the, in the, um, in the Pentateuch. Well, it's interesting that the, the word Deuteronomy, the title... Deutero means second. Namos is law. It's essentially a reiteration of these covenant documents. 
sort of, you know, they've gone through the wilderness wandering, they're poised to enter into the promised land, and so Moses basically reiterates everything that, had, that he had told Israel at Mount Sinai. So you have a history of the nation's dealings with Israel, or of, of the dealings between God and man. You have a restatement of the terms of the covenant, and a restatement of the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 28. So Deuteronomy really represents, in summary form, a reiteration of these covenant documents. Okay? Now, that takes us to the subject of what is Leviticus all about, in summary form. And I want to frame it this way. So, I mentioned this before, if you turn to the end of uh, the book of Exodus, you see this glorious account of how the Lord, the, the tabernacle, you know, most of Exodus 25 all the way through chapter 40, right, is all, first of all, instructions about how to build the tabernacle, and then, for the most part, the actual building of it. So you, and this is why the last part of Exodus is so difficult to read. You're talking about tent pegs and you know hangings, you know curtains and you know who's going to do what, who's going to carry which items, and all this stuff, right? And then you get to the end, and the and the tabernacle is erected, and then you have this scene at the end where the glory cloud of the Lord covers the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. So you've had God's tent pitched in the midst of the camp of Israel, he's the king, and then you have God take up residence in the tent, right? Now, that's a wonderful thing. That, that really is the central blessing of the covenant. I, I mentioned this before. Where's the last time that you saw Yahweh dwelling with mankind in that kind of way in the story of the Bible? How far back do you have to go? Yeah. Pretty much all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? And in fact, I mentioned this, that there's many echoes to Eden in the tabernacle. The entrance, they were kicked out of Eden to the east, and where is the entrance to the tabernacle? On the east side, right? Uh, as you enter, what was guarding the way back into Eden? Cherubim. Cherubim. You know the next place that you see cherubim mentioned? In the instructions regarding the tabernacle. They're there, woven into the curtains. So, Echo of Eden, right? And then there's garden imagery woven into the structure of the tabernacle. Palm trees and pomegranates and flowers. So in other words, the, the tabernacle represents something of what was lost in Eden is being restored to you, Israel. Like a new humanity, redeemed out of a fallen race. And now you're going to dwell in God's presence again. Except, there's a problem, right? This is something that you see emerge even in those earliest narratives about the wilderness wandering of Israel. So, Exodus 33, verse 3, you remember that the Lord, after this terrible incident with the golden calf, right? Essentially, Israel committing adultery against the Lord on their honeymoon. The covenant has just been made, and there they are, forsaking him for an item. While Moses is still up on the mountain... And the Lord says this, he says to Moses, to Moses, Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Right? Glorious blessing, God is dwelling in the midst of his people, but problem, Israel is a stiff-necked people. The two don't match. 
God is holy. They are sinful. He's going to consume them in His wrath, right? Because of their sin. So you have a problem. What's the solution to the problem? That's what you get in Leviticus. Leviticus made it possible for God to dwell in the midst of a sinful people by giving laws that establish and govern a sacrificial system which provided atonement and cleansing for Israel's sin and uncleanness so that they could be in the presence of God, right? But every time, if someone, their sins were not atoned for, or if they became ceremonially unclean, what, what do they have to do? Go outside the camp, right? So, this is really what Leviticus is all about. And this is why the very term Leviticus, it actually comes from the Latin translation of the Old Testament. It means of the Levites. And the Levites, that is, the tribe of Levi, out of which you get the priesthood, family of Aaron, right? They are at the center of Leviticus, because Leviticus is really all about the sacrificial system. Okay, now I want to point out just an interesting fact about Leviticus as well. As you're reading through, you know, Moses wrote these first five books of the Bible. We call them the Pentateuch. That much means five books. It's very interesting that at the center of the Pentateuch is Leviticus, right? It, it Just positionally in the Pentateuch, it is at the center. And who wants to guess what is at the center of the book of, Levit- of Leviticus? Anyone just had a guess? What is Leviticus chapter 16? It's about 30 chapters, 31, 32. What's Leviticus 16? No one knows. <laughs> guess what it is? The Day of Atonement, right? So it is very interesting that you have the five books of the Pentateuch, Pretty much at the center of the Pentateuch is Leviticus, and pretty much at the center of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement, which means pretty much at the center of the entire Pentateuch is the Day of Atonement. I think I messed up my words there. But the Day of Atonement, right? Now, what do you think is the point of that? If there is, if that's significant, what would be the significance of it? Why would that, what would be the point of that? central place for Leviticus and for the Day of Atonement in particular. Because it is the main theme of the whole Bible. Yeah, it definitely points you toward Jesus. Um, And, you know, you can get caught up in all the stories, right? But what does this tell you? Um, At our men's retreat, Robert was talking about this. Typically in Hebrew literature, you have what's called a, a chiastic structure in a lot of the literature where you sort of have layers that are parallel to each other, and then you get to the, to the center, and it's often the center, rather than the beginning or the end, that is, that's the main point. Well, if the Day of Atonement is really the climax, you know, the top of the mountain, as it were, that really says something, because what is the Day of Atonement all about? That one time out of every year. When Israel gained access into the very presence of God through the mediation of the high priest. So, it, it says something. That, that should, you know, however, right now, if you're just a, a Hebrew reading Leviticus, you don't maybe get the full, you don't, get, you don't know about Jesus yet, but it teaches you something. It teaches you, you know, the most important thing in our life is the one who dwells in the midst of the camp. And our, the greatest thing that we should be pursuing, that the high point of our existence, is access to His presence, right? And of course, this is pointing us forward to something in the future, which we'll get. Okay, so let's start diving into Leviticus.
And let's see, so this is where it'd be good to turn to Leviticus chapter 1 and sort of follow with me as we walk through the book together. So first, in Leviticus 1 through 7, you have laws pertaining to the various sacrifices and offerings. As you just flip through the pages, you can see that, you can see how this goes. The burnt offering, chapter 1, chapter 2 is the grain offering, chapter 3 is peace offerings. Chapter 4 and 5 are what's called the sin offerings. And chapter five, the end, last part of chapter 5 through chapter 6 is the guilt offerings. And then at the end uh, of the section, chapter 6 and 7, for the most part, are, all, are instructions to the priests about how to carry out each of these specific offerings. All right? So 1 through 7, primarily about the sacrifices and offerings that God established for Israel to offer through the mediation of these priests, that is, the the sons of Aaron who administer on their behalf in the tabernacle. Okay, now, when you get into the next section of the book, Leviticus chapter 8 and following, right, you begin to see that this is all about the priests, right? So you have, first of all, you have the consecration of the priests, consecration of Aaron and the sons. There's a whole process laid out how they were to be consecrated. That is, made holy. That is, set apart unto God for his use. That's what holy really means. That's why the tabernacle can be holy and a shovel can be holy, right? <laughs> Used in the tabernacle. Because holiness or consecration is essentially anything that is set apart unto God for His purposes. And of course, it must be purified, clean, because God is pure. Okay, so so this is uh, the first thing we see. The next thing we see in the section is in chapter 9. You see the first offerings that Aaron and his sons offer in their priestly ministry. So this is sort of the inauguration of their priestly ministry. And you see God accepting their offering as a sign that, yes, the sons of Aaron are my designated priests. And here they've begun their ministry. And then when you move into chapter 10, this glorious event, their first, they've been consecrated, they offer their first sacrifice, God accepts a sacrifice, and then what happens? Nadab and Abai. You know, it says they offered strange fire before the Lord, and fire came out from the presence of God and consumed them, right? And we don't know exactly what happened here. But apparently they played fast and loose with the sacrificial system. They thought they could sort of get away with, you know, pressing the boundaries a little bit, not not doing things exactly how God said. In fact, it's interesting that in following this, you see offering or you see instructions about about not about the priests not drinking strong drink when they are carrying out their duties, and it makes you wonder, it's made commentators wonder whether alcohol played a role here in their sort of fast and loose actions in the tabernacle. But nevertheless, what is the point of this chapter? What do you think? It'll be worship the way he desires. Yeah. And that's he, it. God, he's, he tells Aaron, I will be treated as holy. It's like, essentially, it's striking the fear of the Lord. Yes, God is dwelling in your midst. Yes, it's a great blessing. But you are not to treat it lightly. He will not be approached in a fast and loose way. It will be according to his word, like you said, Beverly. Okay, 
Now, you get into the next section of Leviticus. If you turn to chapter 11 through 15, you get four, no, five, 11, 12, 13, five glorious chapters, riveting chapters, laying out laws regarding ceremonial uncleanness and how to become clean when you become ceremonially defiled. Now, these chapters, you think, oh. but let me tell you something. You get to the New Testament. And you read about lepers approaching the Lord to be cleansed. See, these chapters make those passages pop. Right? Because they explain to you, this was more than just about a terrible disease. This was a disease that would put you outside the camp of Israel, outside the covenant community. You would cut you off from access to God's presence, right? And so... These laws about ceremonial uncleanness give you the background as to what a glorious thing it was. That here, normally if you had someone who was unclean, if I'm unclean and I touch Carl, now he's unclean. <laughs> now we both have to go outside the camp. But a leper could go to Jesus and he could touch them, and instead of him being unclean, what would happen? They become clean. So these chapters provide you with a glorious background to that uncleanness, that ceremonial uncleanness. And it helps you understand things like Peter's vision in Acts 9, I believe, about where he sees all these unclean animals, you know. So, these unclean, what would make you unclean? God lays out dietary laws, touching or eating certain animals would make you unclean. You could be unclean through childbirth. Uh, you could be unclean through a skin disease. The Bible translates it as leprosy. It's not exactly what we call Hansen's disease or leprosy today, but it, it seemed to be a category, a word that referred to a category of skin diseases. Also, it talks about leprosy in your house or in a pot or something like that. And you realize, okay, probably what it's referring to there is some kind of mold or mildew. So either of those things, a skin disease or mold or mildew, would make you unclean, would make your house unclean, right? You don't want your house to be unclean, right? Because you need your house. Uh, and then also various kinds of bodily discharges in chapter 15. So this is difficult slogging. And also, what do you notice about this? These laws are very significant because they mean that you have to go out of the camp of Israel. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, in other passages, in Numbers, for instance, it adds another category. Does anyone remember what else besides this would make you ceremonially unclean? Touching the dead, right? So, in fact, you remember Jesus, how he says the Pharisees are like unmarked graves. Right? So, there's not a mark over a grave, you walk over it, and what happens? You didn't even know the grave was there, right? So he's saying the Pharisees were like unmarked graves. People didn't even realize the Pharisees were defiling them through their teaching, right? He calls them, he, he uses the imagery of them being like whitewashed tombs, all clean on the outside, but full of uncleanness and defilement on the inside, right? Well, it's interesting. Think about this. Childbirth, normal sexual relations, menstrual period, having, in that day, there was no nursing homes, no facilities you could put someone, right? So, where did grandma live when she got older? Where did grandpa live? In the house with you. So that means that pretty much every family is going to wake up some morning and find a dead relative in their house. And they have to care. They have to take the body out. They have to bury it. So is there anyone who's going to escape being unclean in Israel? No, if, it's, if the laws were followed, it's a constant process. Going outside the camp, 
There's always people going out. There's always people going through a process of cleansing to get back in. What do you think is the point of that? What, what does that teach Israel? We're all unclean. We all need cleansing to get back into the presence of God, right? So there was nothing moral about these, right? There was no... The moral component was whether you were going to follow the laws, but the actual uncleanness was ceremonial, not moral, right? It was designed to teach you a purpose, which is why when Jesus came, to whom all of these things pointed, by the way, it says that he declared all foods clean. This aspect of the law was done away with because its purpose had been fulfilled. Do you see? Now, so you can see the significance of these laws in Israel. The next section of Leviticus of course, is the great chapter, the climactic chapter about the Day of Atonement. This is the high point in Israel's calendar, the most sacred of all days. And so we'll look at it a little more closely. In this chapter, you have, first of all, the high priest is cleansed. You'll notice that the priest is cleansed at the beginning of the ritual and at the end of the ritual. You have two goats taken, chosen for the ritual, one, and there's lots cast over them so that God would pick a goat to be the scapegoat. Then, after the goat was picked, you had the high priest sacrifice a bull, and the other goat, who wasn't picked, for his own sins and the sins of the people, and then he, on this one day, would enter through the inner curtain into the most holy place and sprinkle the blood of sacrifice to make atonement once for all, for the whole year, essentially, or that, that's the language, it's a, it's a sort of climactic day of making atonement for himself and for all the people in one act uh, on that day before the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. Then you would have this scapegoat ritual where the sin, this is where this picture comes from, the, sin, the priest would lay the hands on the, on the goat, Sins would be confessed over the goat, and then the goat would be sent off into the wilderness. And there's a sort of picture of substitution there. You know, so when you hear in Isaiah 53, the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all, right? There's a sort of imagery there, like this, of, of sins being imputed or credited to another and taken away, born. And then finally, you have uh, the cleansing of the priests on the other side once the, once the ritual is over. And then at the very end, you have instructions for how this, this ritual is to be carried out once a year on the seventh day of the tenth month of every year. And of course, their calendar was different than ours. So that's, how the, that's what chapter 16 is. I spent a little bit more time on it because it's the sort of center of the book. Center of the Pentateuch, in fact. Then, you move out from that, Leviticus 17 through 20 is laws not about ceremonial purity, but moral purity. In fact, this section of the Pentateuch is often called, or Leviticus is often called the Holiness Code. Because the, the language of holy is used throughout. But it's dealing not with ceremonial uncleanness and cleansing, but with moral purity. Right? And so you have, you have, first of all, laws against eating animal blood in chapter 17. Laws against various kinds of sexual immorality in chapter 18. This is why... This chapter and chapter 20 of Leviticus has become so important in our day. Even many unbelievers know about these chapters. Isn't that interesting? Why? Disobeying it. <laughs> right, because they're disobeying it. But, but because in these chapters you have very explicit language about homosexuality. You know, a man shall not lie with a man as with a woman, etc. 
I mean, it really could not be laid out more clearly. And then there's a, it's called an abomination, and there's a punishment, a severe punishment for that, and other sexual immorality. So you have sexual immorality. At the center here, you have this core command, right? You shall be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. So this is the foundation for why this moral purity is important, because you are the holy people of God. You think about it, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Right? If I'm looking in the mirror in the morning, and I, what do I see there? I see my image. What does the image look like? Looks like me, right? So if, I'm, if we are described as the image of God, what does that mean about us? That we were created to reflect, reflect something of God's character, right? Something of God. His, we're to be, as, as, as it said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What were you fill the earth with? The glory of God. The revelation of God's character. The reflection of it. Oh, we're not God, of course, but we're to reflect something of God's character. And of course, all of that was twisted and corrupted with the fall. So that when you read Genesis 6, it says, as mankind filled the earth, what did they fill it with? Violence and corruption, right? <laughs> well, here we see a humanity being plucked out, right? The nation of Israel entered into a covenant with God, brought into His presence, and they now are to be image bearers, right? To be holy as He is holy, to reflect His character in their lives. That's what this holiness code is all about, right? Now, it doesn't mean, God's not saying to them, okay, if you want to be my people, make sure you are holy, right? That's not it. He said, I have redeemed you out of Egypt by my, with a mighty hand. I have entered into covenant with you are my people. Now, live like it, right? This is your holy calling. So, then, after this, you have in chapter 19, the laws explaining how to love God and how to love neighbor. You know, it's interesting, when people, one of the big arguments about Leviticus 18 and 20 regarding sexual morality is, that's old covenant stuff. That doesn't apply. What's really important is, Love your neighbor, right? Well, where does that come from? Right in between chapters 18 and 19 of Leviticus. So why do you throw out one part and not the other, right? Where do you think love the Lord your God, love uh, your neighbor as yourself comes from? So surely in God's eyes, love of neighbor can't be incompatible with uh, these sexual components, right? No, they go right together, right? And then you have punishments in chapter 20, for idolatry and for sexual immorality. And these are so striking, they really make you balk as you read through them. And then, chapters 21 through 22, you have laws about the holiness of priests. So again, the holiness code, the core of it, you shall be holy as the Lord your God is holy. You live in my midst. I've called you. I've made you my covenant people. You're to reflect my character in your life. So here's what that looks like. The holiness code. For all Israelites and for the priests. That takes us to really the final section of Leviticus. And here's where you have laws about the calendar, the, the feast days, festival days, and some other stuff, as we'll see. Right? You want to put the book into kind of a neat outline, but you realize not everything fits into an exact neat outline. So, mostly laws about holy days and feasts, 
and some other stuff, right? So you have the Sabbath, chapter 23, verse 3. You have the Passover combined with the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? Because the Passover was the beginning of the feast. And then you have it immediately followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread, right? Because they symbolize God redeeming them out of Egypt, Passover night, and then them their exodus out of Egypt, which they ate bread without leaven because they were delivered so quickly by the Lord, right? Then you have the First Fruits Festival in chapter 23, 9-14, and then the last part of the chapter, the Feast of Weeks, another word for it, Pentecost, right? Um, and then the Feast of Trumpets, and then finally, the Day of Atonement. Does anyone know what, what uh, typically in, among Jews, the Day of Atonement would be called now? Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, right. And then finally, the Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles. And then you have some instructions about various items having to do with the temple. Holy lamps, you know, trimming the lamps in the holy place, replacing the showbread or the holy bread on the table there in the holy place. You have uh, laws about blasphemy. In fact, you have that, that's where that second story comes in. Uh, it's a little mini story placed into the narrative about Israel actually catching someone, blaspheming God openly in the camp, and how God ordered that that person be put to death. Uh, and then laws about murder. And then you have, uh, finally, laws about annual, or like uh, larger feast days. Not annual feast days, but feast days that would take place, or holy days that would take place in, in longer periods of time. In fact, what we see here is there's, there was to be a sabbatical year. A year where they gave the land rest and wouldn't gather in their crops. And then also, the Jubilee. And connected with the Jubilee, because the Jubilee in many ways was about, you know, if you had if people had had to sell themselves into slavery on the Jubilee year, what were they supposed to do? Release the slaves, right? Um, and if someone's land had been, they'd had to sell their tribal land. They became impoverished by the cellular tribal land. What happened on the Jubilee year? They would be given it back, right? So it's, in many ways, the Jubilee is tied into this issue of people who were downtrodden, oppressed, who had become impoverished or enslaved, and how they would be liberated. It was a day of liberation, a year of liberation. And so it's not surprising to see that it's tied in with the laws about redemption, uh, the kinsman-redeemer laws, right? This is where the book of Ruth is tied into those laws, where Naomi claimed the right of kinsman redemption from Boaz, a, a distant relative, that he would raise up his dead relative's line by marrying his widow, Ruth. It was all tied in with these laws about redemption. Okay, so that takes us to the last two chapters of the book. And here we have the blessings and the curses of the covenant. So this is sort of the end of... The covenant documents. Okay, we've laid out the history of our relationship. We've stipulated the terms of the covenant, and now here's the blessings of the curses. Right. So there's blessings for keeping God's law, verses one through thirteen. Curses for breaking God's law. By the way, which of these is longer? The blessings or the curses? Curses. Why do you think that is? I don't know. What, what's your guess? Is it because God is just so harsh, and He's like, "Yeah, I'll do you good," but. If you do that, a warning. A warning, right? Yeah, I mean, when you read through it, they're so detailed. It's like, obviously, God knew what was going to happen. 
And so he gave more extensive explanation of what was going to happen to Israel if, that is, when they broke the covenant, right? And in fact, this was all part of God's plan of redemption. The covenant was lacked certain things, the old covenant, that would make it effective, right? This is what the writer of Hebrews actually talks about this. He says that if a covenant had been given that could that could actually, you know, provide redemption, there would be no need for a new one. So there was a built-in, God had built into the old covenant uh, lack so that it would it would point forward to the need for another. It doesn't mean that the covenant was in any way bad. It just means it had certain things about it that were inten- intentionally not going to provide what was necessary for sinners uh, to keep it, i.e., a new heart, right? And that was intentional. Finally, the book ends on laws about vows. Now let me ask you this. This is, you know, you read the book of Leviticus, you get to the very end, and there's all these laws about vows. You're like, why in the world would the book end this way? What do you think? Why, why does the book end with laws about vows? What do you think? When Moses puts those in there at the very end, why do you think he did that? She's on a vow, you better be sure that you need it. Right, and what has all these covenant documents really been about? Uh, entering into a covenant with God, where your Israel said, all that the Lord says we will do, right? And the Lord, of course, doesn't even need to utter a promise, because his, his word is enough, right? So at the very end, it's like Moses puts in law, a law, final bit of law, about vows, right? Why? Because that really reflects upon everything that these covenant documents were about. Uh, Israel must keep their commitment to God, must uphold their vows. Their yes must be yes, their no must be no. Okay, so, any question about what's in Leviticus? We've gone through the outline. Before we dive into teaching its meaning, anything about questions about what's in it? Okay. What does Leviticus teach us? I remember my wife read Leviticus in her devotions several years back. I may have told this story before. She got done with it, and she's like, man, just read through Leviticus in my devotions, you know, Saul's Somber. That was, that was a weird book, you know, something like that. It was something like that. She's like, I don't understand what that's all about. And I said, well, I said, what the, you know, you read Leviticus, what'd you come away with? Well, like, God is holy, and if we're going to, like, like, that he requires that we offer sacrifices, right? Can you read Leviticus without coming away with at least those things, right? No, you can't. So, do you see, there's a sense in which Leviticus, just reading through it, gives some very powerful impressions, doesn't it? So, let's just look at those for a second. First, God is holy. What a great blessing that he had, he had pitched his tent right in the midst of Israel. He had, the glory of God of the Lord has come down in their midst. The big tent in the midst of all their little tents is Yahweh himself, the one who created the heavens and the earth. Wow, he's our king. He's, our, he's taken us into covenant with himself. But uh-oh, you know, we worship the golden calf and 10,000 of us were struck down in a single day, right? They start traveling to the, Israel, the desert. They grumble over the food. You know, fire breaks out in the camp or poisonous snakes, right? Because he's holy. So the first thing that you see is Leviticus teaches us about the holiness of God, that sinners cannot approach God in their sin, right? Then it teaches us 
that we have to be cleansed to be in his presence. The, the uncleanness laws, they were teaching everyone, you know, oh, we had to bury our, grand, our grandmother today. We've got to go out of the camp for a certain number of days. We've got to sprinkle ourselves with the ashes of a heifer, and we've got to go through this process of seven days or whatever, and, you gotta, and then you come back in, right? You go through enough of that, it teaches you something, right? Or every time you sin, or every morning, and every evening, and every, I mean, every day, every week, every month, every year, there were sacrifices all the time. And, and they're, they're gross, right? There's blood, there's dead carcasses that have to be taken out of the camp, right? If we're going to be in the presence of God, right, we have to be cleansed, and that cleansing comes through sacrifice. We need our sins atoned for. And perhaps nowhere do you see it greater than in that ritual of the scapegoat in the Day of Atonement where the priest lays his hand on that one confesses the sins of the whole people over the land, and the land is banished from the camp. Or or there were other rituals where the priest would lay his hands on a lamb, confess the sin of of the one who had brought the lamb, and then what would happen to the lamb? Blood. Death. Right? We need another, a substitute, to take the penalty that we deserve. Separation from God. Death in order for us to dwell here in the presence of God. So it's teaching you that, right? In a very powerful way. Day after day, week after week, month after month, sacrifices are necessary. And also, that that those sacrifices can't be offered by you, right? You can't go into the tabernacle to offer them. In fact, there's specific laws that if any Israelite tries to offer a sacrifice anywhere other than the tabernacle, what happens to them? Cut off from the people, right? You must have a priest, a mediator between you and God who can enter into the presence of God, the tabernacle, and and offer sacrifices for your sins on your behalf, to confess your sins uh, before God, to uh, they're imputed to the sacrifice. The priest offers the sacrifice, and it's not just any old priest, right? We're gonna you see this in Numbers later on. What happened when Korah? rose up and said, hey, you know, why does Aaron and his sons get to be the priests? The whole nation is holy. We should all have access to God. And uh, Moses said, well, I'm tired of you rebels. If you want to figure out once and for all whether you can be priests, why don't you bring a censer, you know, a priestly censer, and you stand before the tabernacle in the morning, and we'll let God decide, right? And what happened? The ground opened up and swallowed up, you know, Korah and his family, and then fire came out from the tabernacle and consumed all the rebels who had stood behind him. It was like once and for all. In fact, Moses had to send Aaron out among the people with the censer to stand between the living and the dead that they might not perish, right? I mean, it could not have been more clear. God's priest alone, right? Only God's designated could offer the sight. So you come away from the book of Leviticus with all that. Is that pretty good? Does that is that gospel rich, right? Yeah, it is. These are the ABCs. These are the fundamental teachings that equip you and prepare you to understand the person and work of Christ. So this is, this is the last thing I want to focus on. If you would open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and we are going to just look at some passages here. And see how the writer of Hebrews basically lives in Leviticus.
as well as a couple of other passages. As you look at the book of Leviticus, you see some things, well, many things that are intended to prefigure and point you forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? The first thing that you see is that you have this system where you have priests, thank God, but those, there was a problem. Those priests kept dying and needed to be replaced by other priests. And it pointed you to the need for a priest that wouldn't die. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says has been provided now in Jesus Christ. Verses 23 through 25. Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. Ah. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood continually because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right? So, first off, the Leviticus teaches you about the need for an eternal priest. Because Levitical priests kept dying. They had to be replaced out of the sons of Aaron. Second, the priests offered sacrifices for their own sins as well as the people. Because those priests were sinners, right? And that pointed you to a need to a priest who didn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sin, but who would be a sinless priest. And this is what the writer of Hebrews tells us we have in Jesus. Verses 26 through 27 of chapter 7 of Hebrews. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Also, that last line pointed to another thing. In the Old Covenant, you read through Leviticus and you see there's daily sacrifices, there's weekly sacrifices, there's monthly sacrifices, there's uh, annual sacrifices, there's sacrifices for every feast day. And, you know, it's just every day. A constant need for sacrifices. Right? And that pointed you to the... Because that pointed you to something. If those sacrifices could actually deal with your sin, why would you need more of them? Right? And so, pointing you to a need for a sacrifice that could truly take away your sin once and for all. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says we have in Jesus. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Look at this passage. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, pointing there to the Day of Atonement, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. In other words, they, because they were repeated, they kept reminding you, you're a sinner, and you need sacrifice. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then if you skip to verses 9 through 11, he says... But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, Psalm 110, verse 1, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his seat. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sins. 
one sacrifice. The high priest himself actually is the sacrifice. Once for all, and no more need, put an end to the need for sacrifice. And then also, that day of atonement ritual, what a high and holy day it was. But you know what? After it was done, it's kind of like Christmas. You start looking forward to the next year, because it has to happen again next year, and next year after that, and the next year after that. But what the and what I pointed to is the need for a once-for-all event of atonement. That would be it. With no more need for repetition. And this is what the writer of Hebrews tells us we have in Jesus. If you go back to Hebrews 9, 24-28, look what it says. For Christ has entered. Remember, what would the high priest do on the Day of Atonement? Enter into that most holy place. So drawing upon that background, he says, For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So what the, whole, what the Day of Atonement foreshadowed has now come in Christ. Once for all sacrifices for all the sins of his people in a single event, but there was no need for repetition. Also, we saw it there echoed in those verses. You know, it, it was a holy thing for the high priest to enter into the most holy place. You can imagine the people probably gathered around to observe him go in. Or, or to, to see until he came out, right? I mean, they couldn't see through the, the barrier, but waiting, waiting. But at the end of the day, it was a tent, right? And then you packed up the tent, covered it, and brought it to the next place, and inside is a box, and there's engravings of cherubim, but there's no real cherubim, right? And there's, you know, there's a, there's a, a golden, you know, box with a mercy seat, but and there's a glory cloud. But you know that it's just a, a representation. You know, Solomon said when he built the great temple, yeah, but God, you don't dwell in temples made with human hands, right? Even heaven itself and earth cannot continue. We need someone who will actually go into your very presence and make atonement for us. So this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. It's like this is just a copy, an earthly copy of the heavenly presence of God, and that's where we need atonement to be made, and that too is what we have in Jesus. Look back at chapter 8, verses 1-5. through five. Now, the point is, in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the, of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain." And if you skip over to chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, what we just read, and you read again, 
But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He went into the true holy places, of which the earthly tabernacle is just a copy. And then finally, he, the, the, all those laws about uncleanness, right? Going out of the camp, having to go through a process of coming back. Fortunately, you could. Fortunately, there was, you know, the both, uh, you know, the ashes of a heifer mixed with water, and you could sprinkle it on yourself, and you wait seven days or ten days or whatever it was. But all of that taught you something. Oh, I need to be cleansed. I'm defiled. All of us. And I need to be cleansed. I need to be cleansed once for all that I could stand in the presence of God. And this too is what we have in Jesus. In fact, there is a ritual laid out in Numbers about the mixture that the priests had to make. They had to make like a vat of mixture. They had to find a red heifer and they had to offer it as a whole burnt offering and they would take the ashes of that heifer, put it into a water and mix it up. And they have a little hyssop branch, and they stick it in there, they put it outside the camp so that when people became defiled, they go out and they had to use that mixture to cleanse themselves, right? Now listen to Hebrews 9, 13 and 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that is, if they give you ceremonial cleansing to your body, Right? Because you ate an animal or channel you shouldn't. You know, you had to deal with a dead body. You had a bodily discharge, a skin disease. If the ashes of a heifer would cleanse you for ceremonially from that kind of defilement, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? You see. Leviticus is pointing you to the need for not just an outward ceremonial cleansing, but an inward cleansing of your very conscience from the guilt of sin. You see, and this is what in Jesus. So you can see the writer of Hebrews. You think, he, he, what was his main book text that he's preaching? Yeah. You know, there's you know Psalm 110, there's Genesis 14 with Melchizedek, but, but there's Leviticus. Especially that 16th chapter on the Day of Atonement. Okay, very quickly here. Other contributions. Well, the holy days and the feasts each foreshadowed aspects of Christ's redemption as well. Colossians 2, 16 and 17 actually tells you that. He says, hey, don't let people tell you you've got to go back and celebrate the feast days. Those were a shadow. The substance is in Christ. What feast day was this? What's happening in that picture? Flames of fire. Pentecost. Ah, well, there's a feast day right there. Apparently, that recurring feast of Pentecost was pointing you forward to the greatest harvest event of all. You know, the beginning, the outpouring of the Spirit, the ingathering of people from every nation. Well, and the same could be said of other feast days. Also, that holy calling. It's interesting. Did you know that Peter quoted Leviticus 19.2, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy, when he said to us, 
in 1 Peter 1.16 as the new covenant people of God? You'd think, well, maybe we don't have to be holy. That was a new covenant. No. The same mantle is placed upon us. You are the new humanity called to reflect the holy character of God in your life. Except this time, thank goodness, we have what Israel didn't, right? What do we have? Holy hearts and the Holy Spirit, right? Right. Also, finally, all these moral standards that are laid out in the stipulations of the covenant, in the holiness code, well, there's many of those standards that still apply because they speak to enduring principles of righteousness that are rooted in the very character of God or in His design for creation. So why do the sexual standards not end? In fact, you see, when Paul talks about for instance, homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6, he's actually using language from Leviticus. The very language from the, from the Greek translation of Leviticus he's reiterating. Why? Well, because those standards are rooted in God's created order. And we still live in God's creation, right? So they, they endure. Right? They're not ceremonial in nature like the uncleanness law. Or, or neighbor love. Well, Paul picks that up in Romans. Uh, and in Galatians, Jesus picked that up. Because it still holds true. Or the caring for the poor. It's interesting that you see very similar standards. The, the, the old covenant community was to care for it, the poor within it. And in the new covenant community, we're to do the same, right? So there's many of these moral standards laid out in Leviticus that actually provide us with light to our path. They show us what it means to live as the holy people of God. Okay, we're going to end there. But why don't we end with prayer and then feel free to come and talk with me after the class if you have any questions. I still think Leviticus is boring. Anyone still think that? No one's going to admit it. So next time you go back and you read it, you see, you'll have new eyes, new spectacles put on. Okay, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for just the glory of your word as we read these things from Leviticus and we reflect upon their fulfillment in Christ, we're reminded that there is one divine mind behind all of Scripture from beginning to end. The same Spirit who inspired Moses to write is the same Spirit who inspired the apostles to write. And we are—we don't even know who wrote the book of Hebrews, for sure, but we know that it comes from the mind of God because it opens up for us the, the true meaning of what was being foreshadowed through the sacrificial system. We thank you that in Christ we have a great high priest, sinless, undefiled, who has offered himself up as a once-for-all sacrifice and ascended into the most holy place, your very presence in heaven, where he has secured for us an eternal redemption and ever lives to make intercession for us and has opened up for us the way into the holy places that we can draw near to your throne of grace with confidence, knowing that you will give us help in our time of need. And we, we give you glory. And we thank you for the book of Leviticus, which gives us the categories, teaches us how to understand the person and work of Christ in these ways. Lord, give us a, an awe and reverence for you in your holiness and give us a great sense of privilege that we now have access to that we are in relationship with you and we have access to your very presence something that was lost in Eden is being restored to us in a full and final way in Jesus and we thank you that we now can know 
that nothing shall separate us from your love because of the eternal and finished ministry of Christ. And we praise you. We give you our hearts now in worship. Even as we go into the coming worship service, please help us to worship you with hearts of sincere love and devotion. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.